0: So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers, and we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen, and I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better that way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip so once you've completed the quick survey you can enter for a chance to win a hundred dollar amazon gift card terms and conditions apply again that's podsurvey.com slash james james thanks for your help This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire, another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. One of the reasons I wrote the book Skip the Line is because I'm convinced that no matter what you're passionate in, there's a way to monetize it and maybe even make millions from it. The guy I am talking to today, I'm helping him with his goal of making a million dollars He has a very monetizable skill, which is he helps people set up their Amazon seller stores, but maybe it's not his full passion. What we do today though, is we discuss how he can monetize, how he actually does make money, how he can monetize it even more. A lot of times people have an issue with scaling and it's not so easy to figure out how to scale more. I've learned a lot from James Quandel. I I tried to set up an Amazon seller store uh, about a year ago. It's really hard. I couldn't figure it out. Jay, I I asked Jay to help me. He couldn't figure it out. Sorry, Jay, I threw you under the bus there. But uh, James Quandel is an expert at it. And I'm pretty sure by monetizing that and scaling that a bit more, he will make a lot of money. But it might not be the way he actually makes millions, but we talk about it in this podcast.
1: And I wanted to send it to you with a note instead of just shipping it from Amazon. So I ordered it as soon as we recorded that podcast.
0: No, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm gonna read the novel. Uh, Tell me, what did you like about the novel? I felt like I was there, stuck
1: in this beautiful hotel, living my life. And this, uh, the, the main character did, all the sort of things that I would do to keep myself occupied while I was kind of stuck there. He wasn't allowed to leave the grounds. He could not leave. So it's like, oh, great. I'm in this luxury
0: hotel. There's all this food. I get to do all this stuff. Okay, but you can't leave. Right. It's an interesting, almost, I, I hate to use the word existential. I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about, but it's an interesting existential dilemma in that why do you exist? You exist for the pleasure that is you can obtain by living in a luxury hotel? Or is there some other higher purpose that this person needs and without it, he slowly dies? I mean, I haven't read the novel. I'm just assuming that's the the dilemma. Exactly. And
1: well, basically if um, he could have been killed and mm-hmm. instead he's just stuck in the hotel. So, uh, you know, he has to look at it from the bright side um but i mean you're you're in this tiny little place and you can't go
0: anywhere and you have to make the best of it and instead sounds of- like my current life though is the thing but at least i have choice and maybe choice is the is the answer to the dilemma that without choice you you disappear
1: yeah What? yeah that'd be interesting to put yourself in his shoes and and how much different is your life compared to his really
0: well i'll i'll read it and then i'd be curious about i always like to understand for novels that resonate, do they follow the structure of the classic arc of the hero as described by Joseph Campbell? And of course, many stories do, but I'm always curious when stories don't do that as well. And and is it necessary to have the arc of the hero to make a story compelling? But in any case, how
1: are you? I'm doing well. And on that note, there is another book he wrote, if you like this one, called Rules of Civility. And this on, one- yeah takes um place in new york and i don't want to ruin the book so i won't say too much information because it it's hard to describe but it's 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 really good but uh the, the the one i sent you i think is a is my favorite of the two
0: okay well i am buying rules of civility right now let me see i'm gonna just read the description on the last night of 1937 25-year-old Katie Content, great name, is in a second-rate Greenwich Village jazz bar when Tinker Gray, another great name, reminds me of Christian Gray, actually, from Fifty Shades of Gray, a handsome banker, happens to sit down at the neighboring table. This chance encounter and its startling consequences propel Katie on a year-long journey into the upper echelons of New York society, where she have little to rely upon other than a bracing wit and her own brand of cool nerve. All right, I'm going to buy it. Has it, has, Has a... sound to it like Fifty Shades of Grey, actually. I wonder if she had read this. Well, what's
1: also interesting is it's sort of based on the rules of civility and decent behavior by George Washington. And the main character, like, got that book and carries it around with him. And that's how he he emulates the um, people of society through that book. It becomes his uh, playbook. Those uh, George Washington rules, have you ever read those?
0: Yes they're <laughs>
1: fascinating
0: and, but by the way also again it makes me think it's interesting to structure a novel around kind of a historical life code that someone else wrote like benjamin franklin's rules or buddha's rules or whatever uh and live your life that way and then either write a novel or even in some cases there's been a nonfiction book around this structure like someone lived her life according to oprah's rules <laughs> and yeah. uh and that was a best-selling nonfiction book and so that's an interesting structure. Also, I'm trying to think of other books like that. Um, certainly, Star Wars has elements of that. Like a bunch of people live their life by a code of the four of the Jedi. Uh, I don't have to think about that. But okay, so I'm looking at this. But before we get to the Amazon course thing, I just want to run through kind of the basics from the ground up, like. How are you doing in terms of physical health, emotional health, creative health? Obviously, I know you're, you're focused on spiritual health. We've talked about your, your spiritual and religious values before. Um, but how's the physical health? Physical health is really good right now. What do you do? Because I'm always curious, like what I should do, but what, what do you do for, for that? Like what, what I like about thinking about physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual health is that it's really a fill in the blank. Like everybody should live at their own fill in the blank. What does physical health mean to you? And what should you do as opposed, but, but, but it's worth thinking about what am I doing for health?
1: For me, I sort of have like a checkbox in these different categories. And at the end of the day, based on some rules, I guess, or habits that I formed, I either know if I moved closer to my goals or further away. So with physical, for example, one of the first things I do when I get out of bed each day is get a big, tall glass of water add some trace mineral drops to it and stir it in and drink that whole thing. And then I start some morning movement. So if I start each day with like five or 10 minutes of morning movement or 15 to 20 minutes of walking outside, I have like three or four different routines that I rotate between depending mm-hmm. on how I'm feeling. I know it's gonna be a good day the rest of
0: the day. That's, and- a, that's a great point. And I love the idea of rotating them. I I do not, I have not thought of it that way. I kind of do this, a similar routine each day but I like the idea of rotating. Well, I, I give
1: myself a lot of permission to change the rules because great. one, I'm I'm lazy, and two, I'll I will uh, look for excuses. But if I have okay, I'm like, oh, I only have five minutes. I guess I can't do my my morning workout today. Well, guess what? I got a five minute version. Or it's like, oh, I need. I'm really stressed today. Well, guess what? I got a thirty minute version, which is just get outside and walk. And well, and I, I like the idea of
0: going outside and walk because. Uh, and, and this, I got out of a, a podcast conversation with Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist from Stanford University. And he was telling us that um, on your eyelids are dopamine receptors. So in the morning, if you go out and kind of look at the horizon and get the sunlight hitting your um, eyelid, your dopamine receptors on your eyelids, you get an extra boost of dopamine in the morning, which gives you energy. Hmm. It's one of many things he does, recommends for the morning for for a dopamine lift.
1: Well, I have heard that is part of the reason I like to get outside into the sunshine, even if it's for five minutes, is that your bedtime routine starts the moment you get sunshine for the day. So for people that yeah. are having a hard time falling asleep at night, if you didn't get sunshine till one or two o'clock, you're kind of messing with your circadian rhythm.
0: You know, it's funny. Since, since 2014, I've probably done 10 separate podcast episodes about sleep. And I, I, on the surface, that seems like a boring topic, and yet sleep is one of the most important things you can do for longevity, for intelligence, for creativity, for your emotional life, and so on. So it's so important, and yet a big problem in American society is we have sleep issues as as a as a culture. Yeah, so very but few time, people sleep eight hours sleep a day. How
1: much sleep do you get
0: per night? I, I always make sure I get eight hours. So, um. I used to go to sleep as early as 8.30 and I would wake up, you know, let's say it would take me a half hour to get to sleep and I'd wake up around five and begin my day. Now, um, in part, because for, for five or six years I was doing stand up comedy, so I had to switch my routine. Um, and also my wife is a later uh, 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 go to sleeper than I am. She's more of a night person than I am. Now it's moved more like to from 10 or 10.30 to six or 6.30, but I always make sure I get eight hours.
1: That's the same routine I'm on. It's about 10, 10.30, wake up 6.30 or 7.
0: And really during the pandemic, um, even though I wasn't doing stand-up comedy during the pandemic, I really enjoyed watching television with my wife at night. And we binge watched so many different great and beautiful stories that it was just natural that I went to sleep around 10 or 11 and wake up eight hours later. But, uh, okay, so, and do you feel your, you know, so there's one thing having a physical routine. There's another thing, do you feel like it's improving? Like, do you feel... Uh, your, your physical, your understanding of physical health and the routines and the way the routines help you. Do you feel that's improving? Definitely. And that kind of leads
1: me to the rest of the physical routine each day is I have this little timer. Um, there's an app that like manages to blue light on your computer, but it also has a Pomodoro timer built in where I start a little timer on it and every, it goes for 50 minutes. So I can be at the computer working for 50 minutes. Unfortunately, I work like probably seven or eight hours a day on the computer Probably a lot like you. Yeah. Um, but so every 50 minutes, a timer, my computer kind of fades down and it starts a 10 minute countdown. And I get out of my chair and I go do jumping jacks or I do squats or I do dips or I do push ups or I just stretch or I just walk around the house or I get some tea. Basically, it forces me to not just completely go into deep work for three hours straight and then not realize I didn't eat, I didn't stretch, I didn't get up, and which, I can, which I'm which i known to do sometimes. So I created that I, little rule. I,
0: I love that. I should probably, I don't do that and I should probably do that. Particularly, of course, when I'm playing chess, I tend to not get up from the computer for hours at a time. Well, there's a problem with chess. When you win, you wanna play again.
1: And when you lose, you want to play again. So once you start playing, you really can't stop.
0: Yeah. Uh, I know. That's the thing. And all I'm trying to do is use chess as a great domain for learning. I'm trying to prove that the skip the line techniques are a useful thing for quick study, particularly for adult improvers. Like Everybody says, oh, no, you have to be young to improve at at the violin or at chess or at math or whatever. But I've gone up about 200 rating points in the pretty steadily, you know, with some volatility, but, but the moving average is pretty steady. I've gone up about 200 rating points in the past three or four months. And it's, it's, I can maintain that level. Like I'm regularly beating people rated much higher than me and, and I'm still kind of moving up. But, Hmm. uh, and do you feel like there's still circles of knowledge that you,
1: do you know, sort of the path of what you need to learn? Or are you just discovering it based on your games that you play?
0: Uh, discovering it based on games I play, games I study, and and lessons I take and lessons I give. So I have the plus minus equals where I take lessons, I play games and I give lessons, and then I study everything afterwards. And, and then I also, um, I'm realizing too, what the differences are between how I studied when I was younger and why I studied that way when I was younger and how I study now that I'm older. There are some differences in the brain and adjust the way I study. So, and it's also the case like in any deep domain, the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. Every day I realize there are more things I need to learn that I didn't even realize existed before. Like, what's the difference between a grandmaster at chess, an international master, a master, and let's say a class A or class B or class C player, you know, someone who's a couple of standard deviations lower than a master? And I think the class A through class C player has a decent knowledge of basic openings, a decent knowledge of basic tactics, and that's it. You know, they present a danger to a master when they get into an opening, they're a little bit more familiar with, and they understand the tactics in and maybe the master doesn't, but other than that, the master should be better than the class B or class C player. For a master, I know openings pretty well. I know the basic ideas behind the openings and I emphasize basic, but I still know at least some ideas behind the openings and I'm better at tactics than a weaker player. And that's kind of it. I don't, you know, a master doesn't really know the deeper ideas behind the openings, doesn't know tactics as well as stronger players and doesn't know um, the end games at all. Zero. Still, uh, even at master level. I mean, and I, I've, I've gone through even as a kid, I studied end games quite a bit. So, but I could fairly say that at a, even a halfway decent level, I, I, a master does not know end games at all. And by end games, I don't mean technical end games like rook and pawn versus rook. I mean like positions where there's still a lot of energy left in the game, but Queens are off the board and the play is a little, you have to have a lot deeper understanding of good squares, good pieces, you know, which pieces are important to get more active versus which pawns are important to get more active. Like there's a lot of subtleties in in kind of the beginning of an end game. And again, I'm not talking about the end of an end game, which is more technical. And then an international master knows openings extremely well, he knows all the traps in the openings. Like, you, you know, think of like Eric Rosen, for instance, great at, at the openings, all of the ideas behind the openings, knows all of the tactics particular to that opening knows a lot of the positional ideas at a very deep level particular to those openings now i'm not talking about eric but just when i think about ims in general i've I've played many international masters through the in the past 30 years and they're better at tactics they're better at openings they're better at the positional understanding of those openings but they still don't necessarily know end games and uh and now someone like and Eric Rosen or any international master will be better at end games than me, but they still don't really know end games at, at a, uh, you know, advanced level at all. And again, I'm not speaking about anyone in particular, cause I don't know, but in, I'm just saying on average, and I would say a grandmaster might not even know openings as well as an international master, but will know very, very deeply. Uh, first off every level is better at tactics than the level before that's, just a given. Tactics are very, very important. So a grandmaster knows tactics better than an international master who knows tactics better than me. And I know tactics better than um, someone weaker. But uh, a grandmaster has what I call a middle game repertoire. So you know how like, uh, so James, what what, what rating are you over the board? Uh, Probably
1: 1,400 or 1,500.
0: Right. So you have an opening repertoire, right? You have, you know, what you're going to play as white. You know what you're going to play as black against E4 and D4. You have a a small opening repertoire. Yep. Right. So, so, uh, uh, an international master will have an extremely strong opening repertoire, a GM, and I'm not talking about a super GM, but a regular and average GM might have a decent opening repertoire. It might not be as good as a fresh international master. Who's, moving up the ranks, who's obsessed with the openings, but but a, a grandmaster will have an extremely good middle game repertoire, which is a phrase that I'm coining right now, which is there's hundreds and hundreds of kind of patterns in the middle game. They will recognize those patterns and know what the plans are for those patterns much in much more in depth than an international master, for instance. So a simple example is You get into a situation with an isolated pawn, a pawn that can't be protected by other pawns, a grandmaster will know every nuance and every plan of how to play an isolated pawn position. That will be in their middle game repertoire. Now, that's a very common type of middle game situation. So masters and IMs might know that as well, but GMs will know it a little better. But GMs will also have many other sophisticated, like what do you do when you have a space advantage? Do you trade off the minor pieces? Do you trade off the major pieces? This is unclear. A grandmaster will know all the nuances of how to play a space advantage. A grandmaster will know all the nuances of how to play when you're cramped. A grandmaster will know all the nuances when which pieces are more powerful than, you know, when should you sacrifice a queen for two bishops and a pawn? They will know the relative value of pieces better. Because they know this so well, they don't need to know the openings as well as an IM Mm. unless they're a super GM. Then you need to know the openings at a a professional level at a much deeper level. And a Grandmaster will know the end games a thousand times better than I am. Like I was talking to a, a Grandmaster about one particular endgame, and there was one particular move that looked good to me. And the Grandmaster said, "Ugh," he, he had a physical reaction. Like, "Ugh, that's the worst move possible. <laughs> but then I saw the same GM later on a Twitch stream and he was giving a lesson to some international masters, some players much stronger than me they liked the same move I did. And it was in fact a losing move. And the grandmaster was able to show them how that was a weak move. Even though, even to the IM and me, it looked like a winning move was actually a losing move in the end game. And so so GMs have a very strong middle game repertoire and are very good at end games. And so what that means is middle game repertoires are much harder to learn than opening repertoires. Because if I play, let's say the Queen's Gambit opening to get at a master level even a class c player could get at master level in some openings just by memorizing variations and some basic ideas so there they could be master level at very specific openings um in some cases whereas uh uh you know how do you study a middle game repertoire because it's not like a a a bunch of moves you have to memorize you have to recognize when you're in, you know, what patterns are on the board that suggest you use this part of your middle game repertoire versus another one. Like, are you in, in the double pawns middle game repertoire or are you in the open files middle game repertoire and, um, or, or position. And there's hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of things you need to know for a middle game repertoire to be at the GM level. And when you start off studying these positions, you don't even know what positions you need to know. So, That's why the more you know, the more you realize you need to know. Like just understanding this concept has opened up an entirely new universe of positions I need to understand in order to improve further. And and then there's the brain aspect, which is that tactically, I study tactics every day and I'm trying very hard to learn tactics. I realize I'm not calculating as fast as I did when I was younger. I suspect this is true. So I have to study tactics much more uh, much harder. And I also, it actually is, does become very important to understand the end game because that's where an older person could have kind of the intuition, the wisdom um, to play a better end game than a younger person. So the
1: adult improver, I I listened to the Gary Kasparov
0: interview and um, and by the way, he, he's not, he's great of course. And he's, and I learned so much from talking to him he might not necessarily understand the adult improver because even when mm-hmm. he does coaching, he coaches Magnus Carlsen, who's a prodigy from the age of zero. And you know, I, 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 cause Gary described how he coached someone like a world champion level player like Magnus Carlsen. It's different from how you would coach an adult improver. Yeah. Both Gary and Magnus don't understand the issues of the adult improver because they were so talented at the age of six and that's when they essentially started playing semi-professionally.
1: What age would you consider a chess player, an adult chess player?
0: It depends on how they learned when they were younger. Uh, but I would say if they, even if they learned at a, at a young age and they became good at a young age, if they did like me take a break, that was significant break. And they're now in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, they're an adult improver. Or if you start playing when you're above, let's say the age of 18, you're an adult improver.
1: There's a international master that I'll sometimes watch stream, and when he was 24 years old, he had a 2200 rating, and when he was 28, he got to a 24 plus 2400 rating. I think and this was
0: a uh, Jonathan Hawkins, maybe.
1: It's Mark Escherman. Oh, Mark Escherman. Yeah, but he was a I, I think he was an IM level when he was at at Harvard. He was well. He was a 2265. And then he was at 2265 in 2007. Yeah. And then had a huge jump to where he kind of got up to 2450 in 2011, 2012. But there was like a time period in between there that he must've been, he was, I know he was studying like crazy full time. Uh, In
0: between those times
1: or did he take a break? In between those times.
0: Yeah, so so He he had
1: taken a break, but then he had the deep study time in between there for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, so he, uh, Mark Esserman, I follow him a little bit. He went to Harvard where there was a very strong chess team, so he was around very strong players. So he was able to, he might not have played in a lot of tournaments because he was busy with college, but he um, he was around very strong players and playing very strong players every single day. And I don't know if he ever took a break from chess. I think it was just a natural progression from 2265 to 2400 for him. And, and that takes a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, I, but you know, what's interesting to me is, When I was in grad school, there was another guy uh, who was uh, like a professor at at my grad school, Fernand Gobet, who interestingly also worked with Anders Ericsson on the 10,000 hour rule. And I was part of those experiments. He was doing experiments related to chess and the 10,000 hour rule. Anyway, Fernand Gobet was uh, an international master. I think he was the champion of Switzerland. And we used to play quite a bit. And I would say, he would beat me, of course, maybe two out of three games or three out of four games, but I would win sometimes. It was like he was me, but just better at every level. Whereas when I play a grandmaster, they are just, it's just crushing. Like I can't, it's like in well, it's like just in a few moves. Um, grandmasters are a different breed than international masters because they understand at a deeper level, these middle game repertoire situations. And and that's why they're able to play fast. They don't have to calculate as many tactics and also just they're tactically better anyway. But like, I felt like I could compete against an international master. And sometimes in Blitz chess, even online, I'll beat an IM, but I've only beaten one GM at uh, Blitz online in the past four or five months. But I beat plenty of IMs and FMs and so on. And it's just GMs. And I see IMs beat GMs, but, uh, you know, international masters beat grandmasters, but... Grandmasters are just—they are tricky. You are not—you can't trick a grandmaster that easily. They're going to trick you, and it's because they understand deeply what the what the pitfalls are and the nuances are in every type of position, in hundreds of types of positions. International master is already incredibly strong and in professional level, like we see that. But uh, it takes several years to go from someone as strong as an I am to re- of several years of constant study to get to the GM level. So that shows you... Like eight hours a day? Uh, Let's say at least three hours a day. Wow. I mean, Karpov once said, and so Anatoly Karpov was the world champion before Kasparov. Karpov once said he would study three hours a day maximum. After that, it wasn't worthwhile for him. But that's just him. And he had a very particular style of play where he really understood at a deep level, uh, middle game positions and how they move into the end game. So incredible at the beginnings of end games and the ends of middle games. So, so that might not require as much memorization, for instance. And, um, and, but he also worked on his physical health, his emotional health, you know, his whole day was devoted to chess, even if he only studied it three hours a day.
1: Well, that's one thing that's interesting. We were talking about physical health is I watching some of these international masters and grandmasters. It doesn't seem like that's necessarily a priority as it would be in professional, athletic, like, uh, like a, like a football player or a tennis player or a hockey player where they, they have a nutrition plan. They have an exercise plan. They have a sleep regimen. They're tracking all of that. And it seems like, I don't know about at the top, top level, like Nakamura and Magnus and Fabiano and, and those folks. But, um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is there a place for that? A place for, for what? For them to like, formalize the the nutrition and physical plans of these master players
0: uh, maybe, yeah, you mean if it, you mean if like Carlson was teaching someone um you know weaker than him
1: or I mean, like if you're on the Detroit Red Wings, you're everything you eat is figured out perfect for maximizing your athletic performance. but uh, you go to a chess club and they're eating bags of chips and and drinking monster energies,
0: yeah, that's why. You rarely see, like, if you look at the candidates tournament that just happened, which was, let's say, I don't know, the 10 best players in the world playing. Um, d- none of them look unhealthy at all. It's not the, it's not the stereotype of a chess player. And if you look at every single world champion, so let's look at, um, going backwards, Magnus Carlsen. Um, I'm only thinking of the the big names, not the, uh, but, they're, but they're all probably the same, but uh, Magnus Carlsen, Anand, Kramnik. Kasparov, Karpov, Bobby Fischer, even Spassky and, you know, the ones below before that, they're a little older, the Russian ones from the sixties, but they all are in perfect health. And then if you look at the candidates tournament, that just happened to the tournament that picked the challenger for the next world championship match. They're all, they all look incredibly healthy. Whereas if you go to the local chess club, like you pointed out, they look incredibly unhealthy. And so you're right. Having, and this applies to everything. If you want to be a peak performer, like among the best in the world and not just top 1%, like I might be in the top 1% in the world for chess, certainly online on chess.com. Like, let me just see because it tells yeah. you, uh, on chess.com, uh, I believe, uh, let me just find the right page. Um, maybe if I go to my profile, uh, so I'll pick my
1: In in rapid on lead chess, you're better than 98.3% of players.
0: Yeah. And even at classical, oh, I haven't played enough games of classical on lead chess. I'm still I'm I'm probably up there. But um so in blitz chess, I'm better than 99.5 percent of people on chess.com, which is which is more which has 63 million users. So so you know, my rating's 2200 and blitz on chess.com and I'm I'm in the ninety nine point five percent percentile. so that's kind of in- incredible. and uh, I think for I think to be higher, I really do have to be in good physical shape. um I can't have any. And this is related to, again, this was the next question I'm going to ask you, which for instance, I can't be going through a divorce. Would probably would probably not be so good for me, for my chess playing. Because you need emotional health and you need to be improving that. And you need to understand yourself like when you get anxious, when you get uh, scared, w- when you get upset with yourself or jealous or paranoid, like you you have to keep improving your emotional health or you won't play at a, at an optimal level. And you have to understand the difference between losing a game and learning from a game. And you have to have the patience to study your losses rather than just being angry and going on to the next game. That's the only way to improve past 2200. And my rating there is exactly 2200. Um, but yeah, so I was gonna ask, so, and again, this is important for peak performance. So I ask you next, how's your emotional health? Emotional health is good. And uh, I, it for
1: me, it connects with to my spiritual health. And also, um, like there's a, the practice that I do of gratitude each day and and just writing down what I'm grateful for. And then when my wife and I have dinner each night, um, we we took this from Dave Kirpin, but we sit and we say one thing we're grateful for in the house and one thing we're grateful for outside of the house, like oh, coworkers or um, this call with you and Jay or um, something not in the house. Because for a long time, it was it was just one or the other. We didn't always make sure we did something home and away. Um, and another thing that I do for uh, mental health and or spiritual health is is like proactive breathwork and proactive walks outside. Tell like, me about your breathwork. So a couple times a week, I take an afternoon walk after lunch every day. That's another one of my physical um, milestones. Have lunch, get outside, take a walk. And I leave my phone at home. And uh, a lot of times I'll do box breathing, which I got from Mark Devine's book. Um, And basically, it's a four count breath in, and then you four count hold, and then four count breath out through
0: your mouth, and then a four count hold, and then you repeat. That's so funny. You know, um, so we've learned about this recently on the podcast. That's uh, in among Navy SEALs, for instance, that's that exact technique exactly is called combat breathing or tactical breathing. And uh, Amanda Ripley, who wrote the book, Unthinkable, how people, sur- what sort of people survive during disasters. Uh, this is a common way, you know, when facing disaster to to breathe in the way you just described. And so I, I think I'm going to start doing that as well. And and these are good things to keep learning and incorporating into your life and, and, and so on. And I like the linkage between emotional health and your spiritual practice. Well, I do think... It- for the breath work,
1: James, I think that it's really great to have these tools in your tool belt, but if you, I believe that if you're not practicing when you don't need them, it's going to be really hard for you to remember or to natively do it when you do need them. So, I've, I've, I agree. So, the box breathing, by the way, it, you can time it to your steps. So, you can listen to a podcast or be deep thinking and it's just like to your footsteps. So, every four steps. So, it's, mm. it's just really easy to do and you, you'll come back from that walk feeling just super refreshed and just ready for like a whole nother work day almost.
0: I agree. And this is again, like, for instance, this is something I just learned. So it's good to keep learning things and then start practicing, like you say, when you don't need them. And that's how, you know, your all these levels of health improve, even as you age, and some things become more difficult, you can continue to learn things to keep Improving at least your knowledge of how to improve your health, regardless of what your stage in life is, whether it's physical health or emotional health, obviously creative health. Uh, you know, we're about to look at your, um, you know, some the, the notes that you just sent over. But in general, on a daily basis, do you find you're in, uh, increasing your creative health and practicing it?
1: Yeah, you know, and you may see on the my questions kind of some a frame of mind that I'm in, and it's sort of like getting everything done um because i there's a lot of things i want to do for creativity like when you talked about um like books written around old or not ancient but text like the washington list that just sounds so much fun to like write a fiction story in those rules and try to like create a personality around them but it's it for me it's like okay well where do i fit it in with everything else that i'm trying to accomplish like i could I could stop doing my physical routine or my spiritual routine, and then not there, you know, I'd find that time. But it's like how do you, it's stacking all that in there is extremely difficult.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love One important rule of thumb I try to do is, particularly when I get busy and it's clear I have to give something up, I don't give up things I love to do more of things I hate. You know, during the pandemic or even more recently, you know, I love doing stand-up comedy, but it takes a lot of time. And particularly now that I have to travel if I want to do stand-up comedy, it takes up even more time. So I've kind of had to give that up, but rather than replacing it, by doing something I don't like, I replaced it, for instance, with studying more chess. And so I don't have to, you know, so so I can actually get more of that in, in, less, in less time, which allows me to do more of my responsibilities. But um, I just wanna mention about gratitude also, and we've talked about this before. Gratitude is one of the few things, or maybe the only thing, which helps increase your baseline of happiness. Everyone has a baseline that, whether they get sad or happy, they'll always eventually revert back to their baseline but gratitude will increase your baseline. One thing I try to do, which you might want to just experiment with, is I like to solve what I call difficult gratitude problems. I'll take something that's maybe a negative in my life and figure out why I'm grateful for it. So I haven't done this particular exercise yet, but for instance, we all just paid our taxes in the past few days. And boy, I really hate writing a check. Everybody hates writing a check to pay their taxes. Like I worked hard for that money and blah, blah, blah. But how would, what, what's a, that's a difficult gratitude problem. How could I be grateful that I just paid taxes? Well, I I could think to myself, well, I live in a great country that has many more human rights than 99% of other countries, because we have a healthy tax paying community with, with I'll say minimal corruption in, in government. So the taxes, you know, are going towards at least good intentions. I might not agree with the intentions, but at least there's somewhat good intentions, albeit slightly corrupt, but not as corrupt as other places. Another thing is I'm grateful that I don't have to worry about being late on taxes. That's an anxiety increasing thing. The other thing I can be grateful for is that I made enough money that I do pay a, a healthy amount of taxes. So, and that's through hard work and, and, no one pays me money like i i eat what i kill so i have to generate value for society in order to make the money that i then pay taxes on so the more taxes i pay the more value i'm i'm grateful for the more value i'm creating for society so that's a difficult gratitude problem it's hard to be it's a real it's kind of a skip the line method for for increase for exercising that gratitude muscle cuz it's that's easy really for helpful. me to say <laughs> yeah it's easy for me to say oh i'm grateful for my kids that's easy but it's hard. Like if, if my stereotypical example is if I'm late for a meeting because there's traffic uh, and I'm stuck in a cab in the middle of traffic, uh, a difficult gratitude problem, that, That's it's difficult to be grateful for that. I'm always anxious like, oh, they're going to hate me. I'm late, whatever. But I could say to myself, I'm grateful I live in such a uh, 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 powerful city, entrepreneurial city that everybody else Wants to live here and come here. And that's why there's traffic. And that's why the meeting I'm going to is valuable because we're all in this city that, you know, is, is where ideas happen and money is made and lives are built and careers are built. So I'm grateful for that, even though at the moment I'm stuck in the downside of that, which is traffic. So, so how do you remember to like think about that? Like after you send the
1: check to the IRS or when you're sitting in traffic, do you do it in the, right then or do you do it later in the
0: day? you either do it right then or you do it like if you're, if you're complaining. So if later on I complain, Oh man, I had to pay my taxes. I really hate that. That is the moment to be, to be grateful. Anything that you just did that you feel later on that you hate or you're complaining about, Oh man, I'm sorry. I was late for this meeting. I really hate being late. Well, that's a trigger. Okay. What can, this is, this is the opportunity. I'm grateful this happened because now I have a difficult gratitude problem that I can solve and hence improve my gratitude muscle. Cause you can only that. really drastically improve it when you're given a difficult gratitude problem. So you have to do things in your life to have the opportunity to have a, if I never made money, my, I wouldn't have the difficult gratitude problem of, oh, I just paid the IRS all this money. If I wasn't trying to be an entrepreneur, I wouldn't have the difficult gratitude problem of being late for an important meeting. That's so, true you know, so it's also a good sign when you have these problems that you're doing things. That's why you have difficult problems. So, or if you lose it. money in an investment, you know, okay, I, I'm grateful now I have an opportunity to learn something and not repeat a mistake. And I have an opportunity to, uh, at least I'm trying things. I'm, I, my, my assessment of risk versus reward was probably correct. Uh, and when you do go for rewards, there are risks. So you should fail at some things. If you don't fail at anything, you're probably not going for big enough rewards because you're not taking enough risks. And so I'm grateful that I might have a good balance of that and I can always improve it. Uh, and this might give me a guide to how to improve it, whatever situation's happening. So that's just my my notes on gratitude. And and I'm going through this because, you know, it's one thing we can talk about, um the notes you have about doing an online course and this and that which is what we've been doing the past few sessions but i always have to remind myself to get back to the basics because without that foundation again it's the example between the great chess players and the players you see at the club they're clearly doing things other than chess they're improving their health they're keeping their emotions stable uh you know vladimir kravmek was a great example where in order to become world champion, he had to improve his diet. He had to solve some health issues. He got married to a woman he loved, as opposed to, you know, partying. He was known as a partier when he first hit the professional scene, and he really minimized that. And he quite possibly could be the greatest player who ever lived now. So, you know, he's the one who beat Kasparov to become the, the world champion. And um, I think, I forgot who beat him. Maybe, I think Anand beat him. But but Anand's another example where Anand, for Visanath and Anand, was forever the, one of the greatest prodigies ever. He was forever number two in the world, ranked number two in the world, but he kept losing for the world championship. And you read it in his autobiography, finally he decided to really focus on being world champion. And it wasn't about becoming a better player, it was about becoming a better person, the mm. kind of person who could become a world champion, be more determined, be more focused, be healthier. He got married, he figured out how to delegate. Um, you know situations that would wait, were would take away time from his chess studying so he he became a, a better person and and this is an important concept also is that when you know you could have goals but but the purpose of having goals is not to achieve them the purpose is to become the type of person who can achieve those goals because if you become the type of person who could achieve those goals then achieving the goal becomes trivial. It's not a hard thing. So that's how people really achieve goals is they, is not by like, you know, trying again and again and again, and eventually achieving the goal. It's by learning the nuances of, and people say the process is is the joy, but it's not quite that either. It's, it's learning through the process, the nuances of these goals. So you become the type of person who can make a lot of money, for instance. You don't just win the lottery, You, you, you become more organized. You become better at assessing risk. You your network of people that you work with becomes better. You become a better judge of people. You become a better salesperson. Um, you become more creative and so on. All these are on the way to making money, not just having an idea, making it, and then hoping for the best you become the sort of person where it becomes a natural thing that you then become successful at business or, or, or whatever it is you're trying to do. So, uh, that's why, just like you said, with the breathing, practice it when you don't need it, everyone thinks with creativity, oh, I'm creative, but it, when the inspiration hits me, I'll know, no, you have to actually practice the creativity muscle. You have to write down ideas every day or journal every day or paint every day, whatever it is, your, whatever is your fill in the blank for creativity, you have to do it, mm-hmm. uh, every day. So that's my foundational lecture towards peak performance. Can I ask one question on that? Sure. Sure about you said, if I don't
1: fail, I might be n- not, uh, shooting high enough for like yeah. risk taking. I feel like I usually only put down a goal on paper that I'm pretty sure I can hit. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure if I really work hard, I'm going to be able to hit it. I I don't do a great job of setting difficult to hit goals. I mean, the goals take a lot of work to get there, but in the back of my head, I'm, when I am making, I'm like, ah, I could get there. I could do it.
0: Yeah. So I think there's some nuances there. I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea because once you hit one goal, there'll be the next goal. It's not like when, when you hit a goal, you're going to say, well, that's it. I'm, I think a, a, for me, a big source the, of many of the reasons why I've gone broke so many times in the past is that I'll achieve a goal like, oh, I sold a business for a million dollars. I'm done now as a human. I could just do whatever I want. Like, the, the basic things that I always wanted as a human are now accomplished, so I don't need to take care of my emotional health or creative health anymore. And then, within six months, I'll go broke again. <laughs> so as soon as I stop doing these practices i e achieving a goal and then not having a next goal, uh, i I lose everything. Um, but I'm more thinking like, you know uh, you know, if I start a business, and if it's the sort of business which is uh, potentially, look, whenever I start a business, I do everything I can to mitigate the risk. Uh, uh, you know, I think I, everybody says entrepreneurs are risk takers. I think it's actually the reverse. Someone like a Richard Branson or an Elon Musk, they their job, once they decide they're going to start a business, they know the rewards are there if the business is successful. Their job at that point becomes, 95% of their job is eliminating the risk. And you see this in a chess game. If your your goal is to checkmate the king, and so you amass pieces around the other side's king, you open up some files, and then you attack and you checkmate the person. But a strong pl- chess player knows that if he does that, he'll win. So his entire job is to be able to do that while m- 95% of their moves might be preventing the opponent from doing the same thing to his king so that it's not a race, the risks are managed. And once the opponent is kind of just has no plan at all because of of your moves, because you've managed all the risks, then you really move for the king. So chess models life in that way. And, And so what I'm saying really is, you know, if you want to be an investor, you don't invest like crazy in everything, that's maybe taking on too many risks. Like you do your research, you do your homework, you understand before investing. But if if all, you know, let's take an extreme example. Let's say you try to eliminate all risk. So you might resort to something illegal like inside information, for instance. Well, you didn't take enough risks to do this task properly. You tried to uh, take an easy way out to eliminate risks and that is gonna cost you more harm than good. Or if you're trying to start a business that makes you a billion dollars, but you know a good solid business to make a million instead of billion is open up a laundromat and then maybe a chain of laundromats, you didn't really take enough risk to um, make a, a billion dollars. And, uh, and which could be fine. You have to sort of decide what the level of risk you want is compared to their level of reward. So, uh, but there's always risk in everything. If you never have risk, then, like in this Jim Jarmusch movie I mentioned earlier, you might, you might be a bus driver in a local town and never really move up from that. And there's nothing wrong with that either. You could decide you don't really want um, a financial reward, so you don't take financial risk. But to get good at something, to really achieve a level of nuance higher than the level you have now, which is important for peak performance, you need to try and experiment with things that could fail, which means you're taking calculated risks. And if you feel like if there's not enough calculated risks in your life, you're probably not achieving for, for much. So, cause even when you take, when you have a goal that's achievable and you know is achievable, you still have to take calculated risks to achieve that goal. If you wanna run a marathon, you have to take the calculated risk. Well, how am I gonna protect my knees as I practice and run every day? Uh, how am I going to handle the other physical health concerns that happen when, I mean, don't forget the very first person who ran a marathon died when he arrived. <laughs> you know in yep. in greek history so uh uh there's there's definitely health risks in running a marathon and the entire process of training for a marathon is not so you could run faster but so that you could manage the risks of running a marathon so and if you never run a marathon you you never you 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 didn't that that could be fine too but if you want to be a better runner you're going to end up you know Taking a uh, a certain amount of risks. If you if you found while you're training for the marathon that you're not taking any risks and that it was seem pretty easy, you're probably not going to do a good job at the marathon.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. So that's that's kind of what I mean by that. Um, but there's nuance to that too because you can't take too many risks that are foolish, or else you end up being a fool rather than winning the marathon. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, but yes, yeah, so all these things are interesting, and I and I wanted to just touch base on that just to kind of check the boxes on what it always should be the foundation of any kind of success. But now we, you know, we talked about ideas when, you know, we use the spoken wheel approach from my book, Skip the Line. We talked about the ideas around making, a, um, uh, you know, how can you make money from your spiritual and religious practices, i.e. the, the things you love. Uh, and there's also the thing that you do right now for a living, which is, um, you know, you help people, uh, optimize and create and and market and and focus on you know you you focus on helping people with best practices for creating a good Amazon store and making a lot of money from that and you help others do it and then using that as the wheel there's many different spokes we spoke about some of them and how do you evaluate a spoke now um, you have some ideas for an online course on this and then I would say there's a, a third category which is things that you don't do and don't yet know about that potentially could be something that could make money and you could achieve success in we haven't yet discussed those but that's because maybe this amazon seller approach could be a very viable approach alongside the other things we've discussed so let's take a look at your notes for this so i've been um since our our last
1: recording i've been answering questions on quora oh good
0: one question a day right and we and, and 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 remind us I remember we spoke about that, but remind um, us why, uh, what was the purpose of that?
1: Well, the purpose was twofold. One, it's basically market research for why, what questions people need answered in the course that I'm building for Amazon. Absolutely. That's the main thing. And then two, it's it's really, well, it's, well, that even goes to a part B is while I was building this outline for the course, I basically had a lot of it already done from the Quora questions that I answered because I went into a lot of detail on those. and. Um, it's also just allowing me to position myself as an Amazon ninja. It's you know, I'm out there helping people who have questions and um able to give them good answers to their questions, like tr- truthful answers,
0: yeah, that's great. And what have you learned in the process? Like, have you learned anything that you didn't like what 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 things do people have hard times with that you maybe didn't know? Well, it really,
1: made me feel like there is a big need for this course, because the questions that people are asking to me are pretty simple. And it's just things that I I kind of took for granted that I've been doing this so long that that's almost common sense. But looking at what people are asking, it's clear that there is a big need for help for people launching and then trying to solve different problems while they're launching or when they're active on Amazon.
0: Right. And also when when we start thinking about specifics about how do you make money with online courses? This might give you ideas for multiple courses about the Amazon sellers program instead of just one. Well, that's, that's, that's what it
1: did. I realized I needed like four courses and, or maybe even more because things were coming up from these questions that made it obvious that there, there was, it was, it made sense to make multiple different courses for different types of people based on where they are in their Amazon selling journey.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then, um, uh, you know, the other thing I just want to mention about the chorus of it also helps you become a better writer. Like, cause you're writing so much and you see when your writing resonates. Like if people ask a question and you just give an answer, you might not, nobody might care. People like uh, good, compelling writing that, that kind of makes the case for the answer. If I write a book and I just list, here's the daily practice, here's the skip the line techniques. That's not as interesting as when I tell a story about each of these items and I make the real case for why this is important, and in Quora, I've noticed I get the most likes and followers when I make a strong case through a story that helps to answer the question. And mm. people sometimes say, "Oh, it's one time one person once asked a question: Why does James Altucher write such long answers?" So, <laughs> so, so, a long answers never hurt me because I think I'm the number four most followed person on Quora out of like millions of people. So it's not it hurt. Maybe this guy doesn't like long answers, but clearly most people do like if they, if they really do answer the question, but so to answer that person's question though, I cut and pasted an entire book that I never published into the answer uh, <laughs> box. So, yeah, so you had to go through hundreds and hundreds of pages to read my full answer to that. But, um, uh, uh, okay. So let's take a look at, um, your document that you sent on zoom. Uh, so you have some questions and then you have the Amazon course outline. Uh, uh, let's, uh, so so you wrote, and I think we talked about this a little, how do you finish projects such as a book while still publishing new blog posts, plus podcasts, running a business, spending time with family. Um, do you want me to answer these questions? I think we kind of covered that, but... Um... Well, here, here's what I'll say is that a book doesn't have to be separate from publishing new blog posts. Write blog posts that are pointing in the direction of what could later be chapters in the books and it becomes the same thing, the process of writing the book and and publishing new podcasts and, and post blog posts and so on. Um, and running, even running a business, this is all material that you're going to use in the book. So you can combine, you can overlap the purposes of writing new blog posts with writing a book, mm-hmm. uh, in balancing multiple hobbies and interests. We, we, we talk, spoke about that a little bit, um, how to use my writing and get it syndicated on Inc, fortune entrepreneur, Forbes, uh, that used to be important. I don't think that's as important anymore because I don't think people, I don't think those are destination sites anymore. I think people use Google to find their answers and not, they don't go straight to forbes.com. They go to Google first. So I think just having an audience is more important than having, um, you, you create your, these days, people create their own platform versus relying on Forbes platform. So I think just focusing on good writing and. Using places like you know, kind of more public places like Quora or LinkedIn or Medium to to build audience or Twitter you can do Twitter Q and As or Facebook Q and As or whatever is more va- or Reddit AMAs is more valuable than getting syndicated on Inc. Fortune Entrepreneur. When I was first writing, I would get syndicated on these places, and it was good for me. Now I'm not sure it's is as good. It's still good, but maybe not as relevant. Um, being a guest on other podcasts. Cold outreach does work. There are also sites like Matchmaker.fm, and I'm sure Jay knows some other sites where you could list your credentials and and be uh, you'll get on podcasts. Uh, I don't think you need to worry about it yet. Uh, let's. Uh, I think first is focusing on the course, and and that's what will get you known is having a successful Amazon course, because then you'll create money to create ads for your course, and you'll sell more courses, and it becomes a virtuous cycle, and then you're known as the face of Amazon selling, and then you get asked to go on podcasts. So, okay, Amazon course outline. I love this intake quiz. Is your brand ready to sell on Amazon? Yeah, the, the, quiz, is, the quiz is finished.
1: There's a, so there's a live quiz there now that anyone could take, and basically it just comes to my email. I didn't even automate it. It's, I'll just read it and review it, research their brand, and then reply and, at this point, and then figure out what the criteria is and then automate it down the line.
0: Right, so again, that's a very useful point for mitigating risk. If you had to automate it, that would take a lot of time and effort and even some money to automate it. If you don't know how to program yourself or if, or if you don't wanna waste time with whatever it is, Survey Monkey or whatever, depending on what parts you have to automate. I think manually is the best way to start any business. Do as much as you can manually. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display Learn more at landroverusa.com forward slash defender. The other great thing about an intake quiz is are you familiar? You're almost certainly familiar with Robert Cialdini's uh, rules of influence. Mm-hmm. So, so, scarcity, creating a set feeling of scarcity is important. And of course, you don't want to do it in this BS way, like act now while supplies still exist. But here you're basically saying, you know, I have a unique course and I have a unique skill set to teach this, but I don't want to waste anyone's time and I don't want to waste my time. So take this intake quiz. You're creating a feeling of scarcity. Like they people want things that are scarce and this is a very unique, sincere or, or authentic way to create scarcity. Other than saying, I'm only selling hundred courses, uh, which is ridiculous because you could sell a billion it's online. So I love the intake quiz idea. Uh, so let me, let me just quickly read the rest of this course one, follow my proven step-by-step plan to become an Amazon seller and launch your products. Let's see. Um, uh, course two scaling up your Amazon store by marketing your brand. Great. Uh, course three market your Amazon store and Amazon course four: the Amazon account health. Love this. I love this breakdown. Um, you've really outlined course one. Uh, so let me take a look at this, by the way, I love this breakdown because as Jay and I experienced about a year or two years ago, it's hard to create an Amazon store. Just setting it up is, is difficult little. And then of course, once you set it up, it's an entirely different topic to market it and entirely different topic using Amazon ads themselves to market it. That's an entire, I would take a course just on that. So I think this is a good division. There might even be more divisions, but
1: I think there may need to be more. And I also part of that intake quiz is this like step one, where it's all what you need in front of you to register your Seller Central account. Because like, I think a lot of people just, they buy a course and then they're stuck for a few weeks just collecting the information that they need to even start. And then they lose motivation, they get distracted, they, they and then they end up never finishing the process. That's what you know, happened to us. People, I want people to have everything they need in front of them, sit down, take this course, and when they're done with it, it, it at least be
0: live and ready to go. And that won't take long. So so I would have, uh, I'm gonna edit your document. I w- so your first thing is the intake quiz, but, um, and then you have uh course one, and then you have zero one. I would have also what you just said, I would have as an intro to this. Like, this is your goals for the course. This is what somebody should get out of the course. So there should be a chapter mm-hmm. zero, what, what I want you to achieve from this course. Yep, that makes By sense. By the time you're done with this course, here's what you'll be able to achieve. And then people go decide, oh, that is what I wanted to achieve or, or no, no, I already can do that. I want to market my course. And then you could say, and even in the intro, we'll go wait for course two or go to course two, how to market your Amazon store.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't buy course one if you're already on there.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I, like this and explain in, in, in the intro explain why is it difficult? Why do they need a course on yeah. them on Amazon store? So, and here's where testimonials are important. Like, I need someone, you know, Jackie O from Cincinnati says, I need this course because I was trying for for six months to set up an Amazon store and I was doing everything wrong and, you know, have stories and testimonials and maybe your own story about how you got into the business. You know, you, you need to, um, you need to explain why you're doing this, you know, and why people need this. And again, the ideas from Robert Cialdini's book influence are helpful. Also, the four U's of copywriting are helpful. Do you know, have you heard of that? The four U's of copywriting, I'm Googling it. I've written about this. Uh, but,
1: uh, is it you as in Y O U or U as in the letter U
0: as in letter U like, so the, the four U's are useful. Um, how will this course help people urgent? Why do people, you know, how does the course move the reader to act? Uh, Unique, and and I think urgent is because if you're setting up an e-commerce store and you don't have an Amazon seller store, you're really missing out because there's a 30%, people are 30% more likely to buy on Amazon than on a person's own website. Yeah, and I saw an
1: interesting stat from Jungle Scout. It said 80% of Amazon sellers wish they started sooner. And I'm, I'm always shocked when I talk to, brands that aren't on there. And they're just like, eh, I don't know. We don't know how important it is. I go, Oh wow. Someday you're going to wish you did this sooner. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you need to put this in the intro. So, and then unique, how does the course, why is the course different from other courses about e-commerce or Amazon selling and ultra specific? This is where you say, this is what you're going to achieve from this course. Now I wrote an article where I added to this, I made it the six U's. Let me see if I could find it. I never actually could find the article, but somebody wrote about the article and I could find that. Yeah, someone in lifehacker.com wrote about the article. And so I'm going to cut and paste that to you. But I say urgency, unique, useful, ultra specific. Those are the four use. But then I added user friendly. So your course has to be really, really easy to do uh, to take your course and unquestionable proof that this course is going to help you. Unquestionable proof is through testimonials or some measurable
1: statistic. Could the proof also, I mean, is that a money back guarantee of some kind go into that and somehow? Or like can yeah. people do 110% of the money back?
0: Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or, you know, we you can figure that as you go along. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna cut and paste this into the chat. This article from Life Hacker. For anybody who's listening to this, if you Google Master the Six Used to Perfectly Pitch an idea on lifehacker.com and also put my name Altecher, you'll find this article. I think it's about how to make a pitch. Uh, it's Master of the six used to perfectly pitch an idea, but they apply to everything. yeah, so that's it's very important to have this kind of intro now uh, i'm I'm not going to read out loud all the things in here, but let me just take a quick look. Uh, okay, I, I love this. you clear you very detailed outline. um you this would be a great course right. Jay, are you you on? are you listening? Yep. Jay, as someone who you technically tried to create an Amazon seller store, and I'm going to out you, and you failed to do it for <laughs> <Yes>. me. <laughs> it's it's so hard because like they have to like upload all the ID card, right? And, and, and then... so, Jay, Jay, look at this outline. And if you had this course, would it have helped you two years ago set up an Amazon seller store? Or even oh, yeah. now, because you haven't done it yet, so. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know,
1: here's an idea for the course it's gonna work best if we're actually making a store like yeah, showing so, a real store we could start the James Altucher store finally a, right. the long the long awaited James Altucher show Amazon store
0: <laughs> so yeah, we Jay tried, and I like could two be... different username too like and 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 none of this works which is which is weird because like they keep asking for all this like tax and then all the like picture for the ID and then something's got some you know, some of the the fill in the blank got really confusing too. So it probably
1: so, red flagged you because you know you had mismatch IDs and different different. You know, they, And Jay's
0: an illegal immigrant. And, I know, <laughs> and the Asian trying to so, are they is like the Alibaba trying to infiltrate the Amazon or something like that. <laughs> so, so Jay, would you be willing to try setting up a store again using oh, this yeah. course and maybe oh, sure. hopefully using this course, it'll be easy for you and not stressful. Oh yeah, so, for sure, uh, that would be the goal. Yeah. uh, uh so let's see. Um, so Jay and I could be both be testimonials. Jay, Jay will set up a store, but okay. Let, let's say this is your course one. Now the next step is, uh, how do you want to do this course? Have you found a platform that you like? What, what types of courses do you have you gone through that you enjoy going through?
1: I think it's, I actually like when a course is on a platform that has a bunch of other courses rather than being on like their own independent website. I agree with Um, that because I want to put my information in one place. And I I know there's some, there's some cons to that as far as like the pricing and so you don't have as much control over some of that, but I think you can help a lot more people. And for me, it would be more about getting as many people as helped as possible versus a little bit better profit margin.
0: So are there any platforms that you specifically that you like? I like, I like Udemy. Okay. Uh, and, And Udemy, anybody can create a course? As far as I can tell. That's great. And, um, uh, we did a one episode about online courses on the side hustle Fridays with this guy, Brandon Lemon about being a salesperson and he used Skillshare, but those are very also simple courses. And then, um, I mean, I'm familiar with teachable cause I was an early investor in that and, um, they seem pretty good. Uh, by the way, and this is just a chess reference again. And I, cause I know you play chess. Have you ever uh, looked at the courses on chessable? I'm not, su- Oh yeah. obviously I'm not suggesting them as a platform, but I like their structure where it's a combination of video and text and then quizzes to make sure you maximized what you learned from the core, from each. Yeah, Chessable you know, is really
1: good learning for uh, chess openings or different. I really like that.
0: I mean, if you can, if on Udemy, if you can create a structure kind of like the Chessable structure, then I think that's a perfect format for this course where it's a combination of video, text, you know, and and then quizzes to make sure yeah. they maximize what they got. Uh, um, all right. Yeah, so Quizzes would be really cool because part of this layout
1: that I it's, it's in here in the, in the document, but it's basically, it's a lot of what you should do, but also is a lot of what you should not do. And the quizzes could be like, Hey, which of these titles is good or which of these titles is bad. And yeah. helping people learn intuitively some of the things I've had to learn the hard way um, because there's a lot of, bad information out there as far as what to do on Amazon. And a lot of people create their stores as if they're trying to please the overlord robots and not the consumers. And I believe that if you try to create uh, listings and products that help the consumer, then you're going to do better in the long run than if you're trying to please the robot algorithms.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And so, um, you know, the other good thing is you could have, uh, like a checkbox, a checklist. So, mm-hmm. okay. After the first section, here's what, here's what check these boxes. Here's what you need to start. Uh, and you can also have the small summaries. Don't, don't forget a summary at the end of, of each course. Okay. Um, but all right. I mean, this looks great. I think you should now s- just start it. And so, so maybe now the next thing is kind of script out the videos for each. subpart here, like each. Each item is kind of a new section of the course. So you have, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I would so like 0.1 or zero one would be your first kind of um, chapter of the course. Zero two would be the second, and the bullet points you have under zero one. This is kind of like a the beginnings of a script. But I would script out a video and what kind of content you will need for the video. Like you don't want to be just a talking head. You want to have Um, you want to limit the time. It's just you talk, people just looking at you talking. You want to show, uh, you know, you want to, you want to show rather than tell. uh, uh. What do you think about a course
1: where they're, since they already have all these items in front of them before they hit play, where it's sort of what, like it's, it's real time. They're on Amazon seller central Real time following along, and so when they're done watching the course, it's live. They don't. It's action oriented.
0: I I love that because when someone's setting up an Amazon seller course, as opposed to when someone's becoming, let's say, a real estate agent. So in order to become a real estate agent, you have to take a course online, uh, and you have to prove they, there's quizzes. So you have to prove that you took the course, and it's like a hundred hours or forty hours, whatever it is, and then you get to take a real estate test. So the course naturally happens before the action. But here, if someone wants to create an Amazon seller store, they probably already have products that they want to sell. And they're anxious as quickly as possible to set up a store. So they don't want to take a course and then do the store. So I like the idea of doing it in real time. So okay. st- structure it that way. and um, uh,
1: So when they finish that module, they're, they've done those steps. They don't go on until they've done those steps. They even take a little quiz and say, yeah, hey, I did this or whatever.
0: Right. So now I think If, if, you know, I think you should just do this. And by by the way, first thing I think you should do though is look at what your competition is. Is someone already doing an exact course like this? Again, you have to be unique. You have to offer something unique. Uh, I have, there are some courses that are similar that have, you know, the 85,000
1: downloads or 800,000 downloads. But what, what I've already realized is different is one, Amazon's changed the website. I mean, they change the website constantly. So all of the the visuals that they have are outdated now. So it's going to look different if you're setting it up today versus that course. And second, those courses are usually built for people that don't already have products and don't already have a brand where I want my course to really help people who already have an existing brand that is not on Amazon.
0: Right. And, or or you could say look, it could be good. you could you should follow this course if at any point you're planning on setting up an Amazon seller store. Yeah, Ie, yeah. if you don't have any products yet. But this is ideal that you know you know if you already have products and and you want to set up an Amazon seller store in real time with this course you could do that as well. Okay, so that's what yeah. you, and you, you should specifically say that's what you, this is unique because, and then you list the the, the reasons because it's why it's unique. Okay. And I do think a combination of video and text and checklists and quizzes and summaries and best practices are all important. So, so it's sort of like the next steps then is, you know, signing up for Udemy, um, scripting out the videos, Writing the text, do it at least for the first section, and uh, then we take a look and we see if if Jay can take that first chapter of the course. I don't know what it's called—the first chapter of a course or the first lesson in first the first lesson. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, you should just do it. But you, but again, in the intro, you have to say why you're unique, and it has to be really true. You have to say why this course and not any other course is important, um, and uh, I think you should just go for it. And if, if it's unique and, you know, in that other one is kind of market proof, it had 85,000 downloads. And if yours is unique, you should, you should have more than that, that, that many downloads, particularly now there's more Amazon seller stores than ever. So you should absolutely start this. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then you have to figure out, well, how are you going to do video? You can't just set up a camera in your house, and do the video. You really need to, um, you know, think about it in a professional way, like how you're going to do this video. I mean, you can just do it in your house, but you just have to make sure it's as professional as possible. So, so think about that. Um, and you know, and you to me will have some suggestions on that. Like all these course platforms will have suggestions on best practices for making a course. And uh, I would just get started. What do you think about just getting started on this? Yeah. Don't, don't forget the intro though, and using the, the six used in the intro to explain why they need to take this course. I'm, we're going to take this course. So it's got to convince Jay and me. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and my wife, Robin, because it was Robin and Jay who were trying to set up the Amazon seller store and they, and they couldn't do it. What were you so, going to sell? You know, like I have, I have all sorts of products, like a choose yourself mug. I have uh, choose yourself jackets. I have my books. Uh, I have lots of different merch for the podcast. So I was going to sell that, uh, and yeah. So I, th- I would just, I would just get started on this. Like, do you have, do you have time to get started on it? Yeah.
1: All right. Definitely. Uh, The part that worries me is the, the videoing, but I think,
0: well, why don't you start it without video? I mean,
1: I could do video here with with a camera, but I'd I'd have to, that's what something I don't know right now is where I would go to record it. So I'd have to figure it out, but I don't, so that's a problem.
0: Again, let's start, let's try as simple as possible. Maybe all you need to do, like you need to be able to take, do screen capture videos uh, to show what you're doing on the screen and Mm -hmm. edit that in with you talking. So, and you use GarageBand for that. And it's not that difficult, but it does require learning a skill of, basic video and audio editing which is not that hard jay for instance taught me how to do it um and every now and then i need jay's help to to update my knowledge or or remember what i'm what i'm doing but i let's just why don't you just start off with text and screen captures that you know images that you paste into the text and just start that way and then later on we could figure out if you need to do actual video yeah but, but, at the very least, let's make the first inroads. I would say intro, and that's that's probably the hardest part to script, but the six U's are sort of the guide to that and and then at least um uh zero one the 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 first lesson, maybe zero one and and yeah, zero two is an easy one. oh, and also for each lesson, you should have kind of a how many minutes it will take you to do this lesson, yeah. So, but you yeah, that again, way they I,
1: have that time when they start it. I mean, don't, don't sit down unless you have 20 minutes because you need to finish this live while you're watching it.
0: Right. And also it shows them, this is not going to take them, uh, 10 years to set up their Amazon seller uh, account. So, you know, it's both a, a guide and also, a, um, gives them optimism that this is going to be a very quick course for them to do this and, and valuable. So I would try to do at least intro zero one zero two. I, I I try to do at least intro zero one and zero two, uh, so lesson zero, lesson one, and lesson two, uh, within the next week. Is, is that's like at least the text part? Yeah. And then maybe even the um, screen capture videos. Do you think I should do a
1: little more looking at Coursera, Udemy, Skillshare, some of these other ones, or just?
0: Um. Yeah. But but you know what. I would look at them with the goal of they're all going to have guides on best practices for creating a course. And as you go through those guides, just see what, uh, uh, resonates with you the most. And then you mm-hmm. can choose because ideally you want to put the course in more than one place if that's allowed. So Udemy is just a start, but then you might put it in, in on Skillshare and other places. That's a great point. Yeah. I don't think and, and, and any... where where the course, which platform has the most courses related to e-commerce and business. You might want to look at that as well. Okay, you want to go where the people are—that you're where your customers are. That's true. Yeah. So like if you if you want to make a lot of money, for instance, chances are you don't want to move to the middle of uh, the swamps in Mississippi because there's nobody there spending money. You people move to New York City or L.A. or San Francisco or Chicago to make money because that's where the most money is being spent. So, uh, so you want to go to the place where your customers are. Yeah, and where there's and where your customers are spending money on courses, so wherever that one course is, where there's eighty-five thousand downloads, that might be a good platform for you. Which was Udemy. Yeah, so that I would stick with the Udemy then, but use the check out the other ones just to see what their best practices are, and just see which ideas from that resonate with you. And your idea list for this should be about implementation, like how am I going to describe these things, or maybe your lists are your the scripts you know maybe your creativity each day now is making lesson 1 then lesson 2 and lesson 0 um do more than that if you can but I would at least get those done um and then our the you know we should try to get all of this done for for a course 1 within if it's possible within the next month and mm-hmm. I I know that's aggressive but uh but you know particularly without video, it's doable. With video, it's a little aggressive, but without video, you I'm sure you can do it. Yeah, I think and, so too. And by the way, let's say, you know, at the very least, you also have a book out of this too. So one one way or the other, there's, there's benefit to doing this process. Or it's, um, this is a good way, uh, kind of almost an outline for a, a website. Like if you hire me as to help you with your Amazon seller program, we're going to go through a rigorous process. And here's where I describe the process and the, even what you've sketched out here could go on your website as the, you know, the ultimate Amazon seller setup process. And you know, this is your almost like military style method for setting up uh, an Amazon seller store. This is your best practices. And this is how you'll help people. Mm-hmm. So It could be good for your service business. It could be an online course. It could be good for a book but I would do it mostly as an online course right now, just because I think that that's a, a good way to make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then next time, let's also talk about, uh, cause I do think it's good to do things in tandem. While you're doing this course, we want to find other ways, other other wheels and other ways to to make that that million dollars. So this is a start, but then another thing is now start brainstorming or your ideal have some idealists on completely other things that aren't what you do professionally or and, and aren't necessarily you know things that you're you massively love but things that you have done and skills that you have and figure out other other things that uh, other topics or areas maybe even areas you don't know yet like maybe you want to make money as a chef but you don't know how to cook yet Just start <laughs> Start brainstorming on maybe other skills you need okay. to learn uh, or would like to learn. But one there was skill- um, mm-hmm.
1: there was a interesting opportunity. This was just on a random idealist somewhere that I wanted to do like coaching, like performance coaching, like helping people with their habits. And um there was a transformation challenge that someone was doing, and it was a six week long challenge, and different coaches were helping with different parts of of human wellness. And I contacted and said, hey, you know, I I'd love to to help here somehow. I could talk about habits and motivation and inspiration and like dreaming and setting goals and like habits that you can have when you're having a bad day to get back on track. And and they said, Okay, great. You want to kick the thing off? And so I did the kick off presentation, 30 minutes for a hundred people live wow. on Zoom. And it was a it was a six week transformation challenge that they all paid to be a part of. and it I wasn't it was
0: fun. Like I loved it. Like I had so much fun. and then and was your was your techniques based on experience? was it based on research? How did you organize
1: well, it 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 was basically laid out based on what's worked for me. so that's great um and 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 what I've learned is from reading books and listening to podcasts every day um and it the the i made it very interactive i was having people answer things in the chat and close their eyes and imagine things and um is, is it actually, recorded
0: can i take a look at that yeah i recorded it you want me to send it to you yeah send it to me and then next meeting let's go over your your the beginnings of your course on yep. that we've just discussed here yeah let's let's recap some of the stuff from earlier meetings about the uh, books on spirituality and stuff like that, that you were thinking of before. And then let's go over the idea of how you could unique, be unique in the coaching space. Cause that's a very crowded space, but I do think you'd be really successful at that. I mean, a lot of people are very successful at that. And there's, there's no reason why you shouldn't be, since you have a passion for it. Let's go over that and look at best, pr- understand best practices of that and how we could start a regimen where you're m- potentially making a million dollars from that
1: that'd be great it james it it gave me so much energy i was before i went on i was sick like like i felt probably the most uncomfortable i've felt in a decade like just like my wedding day i didn't have anywhere near these level of jitters and I had to go take a walk. I'm like, I'm going outside. I'm taking a walk. I only have seven minutes. I need to get outside. Like I need to breathe. I need to do all my techniques. But as soon as it started, I was, I loved it. It felt that's great. so good. And, but here's the best part. It, it wasn't just about me. It was the, the participants said it was really, really great. And they sent in testimonials. And then I got invited back. They, they're going to continue to do these quarterly. And they want me to be involved in all of them now. So, oh, that's great. Cool.
0: So let's, let's, talk more about that next time and let's go over the um the course that you're doing and i'm super excited like i think this is great and uh how long have we when was our first meeting uh maybe like a month and a half ago okay so we've got we've got uh ten and a half months let's uh let's you know as as it almost sounds gross to say let's make you a million dollars but on the way of doing it. And again, it's not about making a million dollars. It's about becoming the sort of person who can, I almost want to say trivially make a million dollars and that's what's happening in this process. And so, uh, but that's why I think now, now we got to get down to implementation at least with one of these ideas. And so I think starting the course is good, but then we'll think of some concrete things for the coaching, uh, uh, next, next time, uh, which maybe we could just set up a meeting for a week from now
1: yeah we could that'd be great um let's let's see so what today is friday um, i have uh i dropped the youtube video it's probably it.
0: okay i got good. it uh, oh it, uh did you make it accessible to me because i i cut, cut and pasted it yeah i have it i just started playing it accidentally um all right, so remember, I remember uh,
1: that was and that was that was unscripted. I mean, I had the PowerPoint, but next time, I mean, I was even having technical problems. I couldn't even move my mouse. I like I didn't know what I was doing. But next time I want to actually use the slides less because I think nowadays, like people are so used to like hiding behind a presentation that the person that's like putting their face forward, like and getting like really close and personal, I think is gonna stand out.
0: So I think this is great. and i could I could tell you're excited about this. And then here's what I want you to think about. Also, what skills do you need to learn to make a great online course? And what skills do you think you still need to learn on the coaching side? Uh, so think about that too, because then we have to figure out how to learn those skills. Yeah. Those but, will
1: be idealists. I'll do that. would Be great.
0: Yeah. And let's meet, uh, how's we'll give you Memorial day. So how's Tuesday, June 1st, 2 PM. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and James also, I, you know, we met in part because I was streaming on Twitch, uh, uh, Twitch streaming. And I forget, did you, you sent me a list once about how I should improve my, my streaming.
1: Yeah. Did you, did you ever look at that?
0: No, I have, I I've looked at it and it looked great. And I haven't been streaming though lately. I think now I'm ready to start streaming again and maybe in June we'll start that as well. And, uh, I, I love your help on how to be a better streamer. Maybe we could talk about that uh, next on June first as well. So maybe yeah, I'm actually, just an
1: active participant.
0: I've never streamed, but you know. <laughs> but you've been you've you've you you were like a moderator for uh, uh, Eric and yeah, uh, and you've you your list was very good. So you know what, I'm gonna put on that Tuesday, June first, and this depends on on the guest that Jay's talking about too. But I want to stream on Tuesday, June first. And maybe you could help me with that if you have time. Yeah. So, um, all right. Uh, I think what I'm gonna do is, like, I uh, I saw this guy do quest for 2700. So people watch to see mm-hmm. if he would achieve his quest and what he was learning along the way. Maybe I'll do like a quest for 2300 or something like that or 2400, and you know, something like that.
1: Yeah. People like the the journey, and then to feel like you know, I really think that this, you know, the the perpetual chess podcast does that. Adult learning, which I know you've been on. Yeah, um, I just spoke think- with
0: Ben yesterday. Ben Ben Johnson, uh, he's a friend of mine. And he he was. Uh, we were just texting yesterday how uh, he 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 liked the Kasparov podcast I just did, and I might go back on as I go through this process of adult learning. I I really like his podcast, and uh, uh, he, he has a lot of great guests who are, are people who are, who are adult improvers, and I might go on it again now that I'm going through this process.
1: Well, I really like it because it's just a lot of times it's regular people like me that are, you know, they have jobs, they have a family, they can't just spend eight hours a day. And so they have to find sort of the, the, the best things to focus on to improve. But I just really feel like that's a space that's missing in the chess world is how, like, I don't think anyone's done a really good job of teaching adults how to improve a chess. Like if someone could make a book like that, I think it could be a bestseller because it's missing, and and I don't think it's gonna come from a grandmaster.
0: I agree because because grandmaster grandmasters started when they were five. They don't know. Right. They start when they're five, and they it's a very rare situation where they ever took a break before becoming a grandmaster. Yeah. So uh, there was a
1: there was a book, the um, rapid chess, rapid chess improvement, a study plan for uh, adult players by Michael Maza, Michael De La Maza.
0: Oh, I don't think I know that one. That one was um,
1: pretty, seemed pretty decent. And I know you were doing the woodpecker method. So, and that was in this, that's, that's, that book, that was in this book.
0: You, you know, what's also good too, uh, is uh, by Matthew Sadler, Chess for Life. And he talks to all these GMs who took a break, including himself. And he's in the top, like 50 players in the world, I think. But he took a big break and then came back to it and had to deal with, you know, relearning. Because, you know, when you take a break from something like chess or tennis or any of these import you know very difficult skills not only do you get worse but the world gets better and so yeah. so so like when i stopped playing in tournaments in 1997 or 8 uh i was of course a master i was ra- rated over 2200 but the average 2200 now is probably better than the average 2200 back then, just because the knowledge of chess has changed and there's many more players and kids have gotten better and computers didn't exist then for chess training. They, they did not exist at all. So, uh, now the world's completely different. Like people learning, kids learning now have so much more knowledge at their fingertips. There weren't, weren't thousands of courses on chessable. Uh, so the world has gotten better. So I'm trying to catch up with that too. Just as an example, everybody plays the London system, right? That opening. Oh, and yeah, that, that opening didn't exist as far as I know in 1998. I never even heard of that opening in 1998. Now, yes, there are historical cases dating back to the 1800s, but it wasn't something anybody studied back then. Now, if I go to my chess it. club,
1: that's all that will be played against me. As if I, it, That's it. it they...
0: <laughs> well, and I've I've studied now a little bit of the opening. There's really like a lot of subtleties, which we, you know we could talk about another time. But like, for instance, after you do Bishop F4, uh, and this is not important for anybody listening to this, but after you do Bishop F4, you know how it's the Bishop F4, E3, D4, C3 setup? Do you ever go for the E4 break? Well, maybe I, not I, because your Bishop's already outside the pawn chain. You don't, might not need the E4 break. When do you, And a lot of people don't know these subtleties, even the people who play it at the master level.
1: Yeah. You know, you watch, there's a guy, Andres Toff, and I think he coins himself as one of the most underrated un uh underrated youtubers i think he's like adopted that term he's one of my favorite chess players favorite chess youtubers and favorite streamers he is awesome
0: he, how do you how do you spell his last name
1: t-o-t-h-a-n-d-r-a-s he is so hilarious so educational and he has all these phrases that uh, he's in australia now but i think he's from hungary he's an international master but he loves to shred the London, like, and he has beaten uh, Eric Rosen's London, so that's oh, pretty right.
0: impressive. And uh, I'm trying to think of another uh, one like that. Uh, who's like? There's the Butcher. I think he's trashed the London, um, and he's an IM. He's see. This is the thing, though. IMs like the, You know, they're all great. I think IMs are even better than GMs for watching YouTube videos about openings
1: it's good i feel like it's more relatable to me too like i understand their
0: language whereas when i'm watching like gms i'm really getting a sense of deeper levels of play even when you watch eric hansen who's you know he's one of the best players in the world on chess.com he's the number one ranked player in the world for rapid play uh and he does these great streams where he's like he, he gets so upset at himself when he blunders and he throws chairs and this but wait,
1: but hold on, hold on. Can we, can we just say this? His blunder is not actually a blunder to like me. It's like, oh, I didn't, this pawn. Oh, I feel like that pawn's so weak now. I would, don't even know what it means, you know? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Or or it's like a 17, like, I can't believe I missed that. It was like a 17 move tactic. Yeah. But uh, but he's also very tactical. He's very, he's amazing. But he'll say things like, um, he'll be playing Magnus Carlsen at Blitz, for instance. And he'll be like, "Ugh, I just gave him the E5 square you know, give, give Magnus. I always know, give Magnus a square and the game's over. And so like, even (laughs) like nuances like that. Oh, I wish someone could say that about me. Give James Altucher a square and the game's over. So what does he mean when he says that? Like, that's very valuable information. And he's just saying that off the top of his head, but then I have to think about it. I think you should write the book. It could be. Well, let's talk about that next time. You can help me uh, figure out how to write it and how to structure it
1: yeah I think it there's an audience for it, and I know I would buy the book,
0: particularly if I could make it like like skip the line is a little bit about like a guide to adult improvement in some sense. it's also about monetizing, which is different from adult improvement but if I tie in maybe write some articles on specifically how um my specific techniques for doing it for chess which are very different from any book I've ever seen, mm-hmm. maybe there ever be an audience for those articles, and then that could point me in the direction if there's a book or a podcast out of that or whatever. You know, Um, the,
1: the art of learning by Josh Whiteskin, it's a chess and martial arts book. And it helps you with both of those, but it's also a book on just learning in general, and it makes it applicable to the whole world.
0: And I, I have that book actually, but I've never read it. Um, because i again, I was worried with him, not worried, but, uh, he learned at a very young age. So, if he came back to it and started relearning, that would be interesting to me. But yeah, you know, he went gonna, after he after he left the chess scene.
1: Right, he, he began tai became Chi. exactly. He became a world champion in another uh, designation as a much older person. So I mean, I'm going to read it. Uh, you uh, you've convinced me. I'm going to read it. You should. It. I loved it. It's, it's on my on my book of uh, my list of favorite books for sure. Of fifty something books. Excellent.
0: Reach out if you have any questions to me or Jay. Okay, thank you very
1: much, James. I really appreciate it. This is fun. This is so much fun.
0: Yeah, no, for me too, I really enjoy this.